I'm Nia Clark, host and producer of Dreams of Black Wall Street. If you're a new listener, thank you so much for joining this journey. And if you are a returning listener, double thank you for sticking with us and coming back and also waiting a really long time for this season to come out. If you've noticed, it has been a while since I last released an episode, and I have a very good reason for that. Say hi, Eli. (laughs) So as you can hear, this is the newest addition to my family's life. This is Eli Tayo Clark, my son. At the moment of this recording, he is eight months old, and he is also the love and the center of my and my husband's life. And I have been in the throes of motherhood, trying to take care of him and work a full-time job and produce this podcast. So you'll have to forgive me if I'm a little tardy. Let's get to it. Oh, baby, didn't do this. I am sitting here by the river. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. Especially if you want to help us get the word out about this history, these stories, and the work we're doing. Thank you so much. performed by the Dinwiddie Colored Quartet. Their version is the first cut of the song to be recorded, which the group did for the Victor Talking Machine Company in 1902. It's among a number of Negro spirituals that not only have a message of faith, but also include hidden or coded messages in their songs that enslaved African-Americans or Africans or people of African descent would use to signal their intention to escape bondage either on their own or on the Underground Railroad. For example, on its face, steal away to Jesus means dying and going to heaven. But when used to escape, it could also mean the person who is singing it is planning to flee from their master or from bondage. You'll hear several of those songs during this season of the podcast, which will focus on a number of pre-Civil War Black communities, some of which are believed to have been stops along the Underground Railroad. 
Now, dozens of communities comprised of people of African descent formed in the years leading up to and following the Civil War have either been omitted from the annals of history or have received the equivalent of a footnote. From the very beginning, the point of this podcast has been to write them back into history, so to speak, not by telling new accounts of history, but by highlighting history that has already been discovered, researched, and documented through interviews with some of the people who've done that work. Essentially, I want to amplify the voices of people who didn't get to have their voices heard during their time on Earth. Now, many of these communities were founded and led by enterprising, industrious, resilient African-Americans or people of African descent who overcame seemingly insurmountable odds in the first decades of freedom for Black Americans following the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. Some of them grew to become prosperous relative to the times within which most of America's earliest middle class and upper class African-Americans rose to prominence. These stories were only part of the Black experience during this time, albeit an important one, and seem that much more remarkable considering that most people of African descent during this time were poor. In the late 19th century, most African Americans lived in the South and were economically exploited as farm laborers, tenant farmers, sharecroppers, and unskilled non-farm laborers if they weren't incarcerated under the slave-like convict leasing programs. On average, Black Americans were a relatively poor population concentrated in a relatively poor region of the country as the South struggled to economically recover and lagged behind the rest of the U.S. Racist legislation meant to thwart Black progress throughout the South, such as Black codes, for example, further restricted opportunities for Blacks, particularly since most could not vote in the South and advocate for better policies. Blacks, by and large, would not start to experience more significant economic gains as a group until large-scale Black migration north during World War I, which would narrow the Black-white income gap to a certain degree. But they were still starting from a disadvantaged position as structural racism continued to be a drag on the development and progress of a people who had been relegated to the underclass. However, unlike the communities of today, which are largely segmented based on race and class, most of these early Black and Brown communities consisted of both well-off and poor Blacks, or working-class Blacks, people on all parts of the economic spectrum. Regardless of how certain people of a specific stature or socioeconomic status were grouped and treated, most people of African descent by and large understood the basic principle that they were stronger together and that the success of a few was really worthless if the needs of the masses were not addressed. Because quite frankly, under those circumstances, the entire race would falter. But this mutual cooperation that was key to Black survival was not a trend born after the emancipation of enslaved Black Americans. Free Black communities in various states were operating under principles of mutual cooperation decades before the Civil War and the end of chattel slavery as a national institution. This was the case in what would become New York State and New York City in particular. These were precarious times in part because in many instances, free Blacks and enslaved Blacks would exist relatively side by side, as was the case in antebellum New York. This had real implications for everyone, Black, white, or other. It was a time when the anti-slavery movement was juxtaposed with anti-Black racism and violence. 
Additionally, as unprotected and unrepresented as African-Americans generally were in most cities and towns following the Civil War, despite measures taken during Reconstruction to buttress Black assimilation into free society, they were far less protected and represented prior to the national abolition of slavery. This was a time when the moral conflict that slavery presented to whites, particularly among those who were experiencing somewhat of a religious reckoning, clashed with the economic interests of the capitalists who profited from black bodies in bondage. This was also a time that experienced a surge of immigrants into America, which often exacerbated already fraught racial dynamics. And this is a period of history that receives far too little attention, in my opinion. While the previous seasons of Dreams of Black Wall Street have largely focused on the period known as the nadir of American race relations, when racial tensions in the United States were considered to be at their worst, this season, season four, will focus on free Black communities and free Black societies during the antebellum period of the 19th century in New York. This includes the anti-slavery, abolitionist, and Black advancement efforts of their leaders. While there are a number of antebellum free Black communities and settlements that formed in New York during this time, we'll hone in on one in each of what would become the five boroughs of New York City. Seneca Village in Manhattan, Weeksville in Brooklyn, Newton in Queens, Sandy Ground on Staten Island, and the community surrounding the Centerville AME Church, or what was once the Bethel AME Church, near the town of Westchester, part of the present-day borough of the Bronx. The deep dive into this time period will also include an analysis of free Blacks and people of African descent in Manhattan, who, rather than living exclusively in predominantly Black neighborhoods, lived more in enclaves. Even within these enclaves that were part of the larger community of what would become New York City, they were part of a society of free Blacks with life experiences specific to the pre-Civil War time period. This season will also focus on the New York draft riots and massacre of 1863. If you're listening to this episode on or close to the date of its publishing, you might notice it was published on July 14th. And that's between July 11th and July 16th, which is the anniversary of the New York City draft riots and massacre of 1863. What was arguably the worst insurrection in U.S. history broke out when angry working class white New Yorkers participated in an uprising over a new federal draft law passed during the Civil War. While it started out as an anti-war, anti-government effort, it soon turned into a series of race-based acts of terrorism that targeted Black New Yorkers. White working-class New Yorkers, the Irish in particular, resented African Americans who they viewed as competitors for work and did not want to fight for a war that had become seen as an effort to secure the freedom of Black slaves. Worried about the Union's lack of manpower in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln's government passed a new conscription law requiring male citizens ages 20 to 35 and unmarried men between ages 35 to 45 to report for military duty if called upon to do so. The men were chosen based on a lottery, but wealthy men could buy their way out by hiring someone to fight on their behalf or by paying $300 to the government, which was a lot of money at the time. In fact, it was equal to the average yearly salary for an American worker. Well, white American worker, that is. That meant that the wealthiest American men could avoid the draft. Additionally, black men were exempt from the draft as they were not considered citizens. 
When the city conducted its draft lottery on July 11, 1863, the anger of white workers had boiled over. By July 13, thousands of white workers, primarily Irish Americans, directed their anger toward military and government buildings, as well as anyone who tried to stop them, police and soldiers included. But by the afternoon, they had turned their anger on black citizens, as well as their homes and businesses. We'll explore the racial terrorism blacks experienced during the draft riots in greater detail later. But for now, let's get some perspective on the mindset of the perpetrators. According to the American Social History Project by the City University of New York, an entry titled, A New York Rioter Explains His Opposition to the Draft, explains, quote, In 1863, Congress issued a conscription act to draft more people into the army to fight the Civil War. The draft law also included a provision that allowed wealthy men to pay $300 to a substitute, thus avoiding military service. In response, in New York City, protesters led four days of violent attacks against African-Americans, draft officials, wealthy businessmen, and Protestant missionaries. One rioter attempted to explain why he participated in the draft riots in this letter to the editor. The newspaper editor's response to the letter is also included. This letter contains racist language, end quote. Now, the letter was published by an anonymous person in the New York Times on July 15, 1863. It was titled, A Letter from One of the Rioters, Monday Night Uptown, quote, to the editor of the New York Times. You will no doubt be hard on us rioters tomorrow morning, but that $300 law has made us nobodies, vagabonds and cast outs of society for whom nobody cares when we must go to war and be shot down. We are the poor rabble and the rich rabble is our enemy by this law. Therefore, we will give our enemy battle right here and ask no quarter. Although we got hard fists and are dirty without, we have soft hearts and have clean consciences within. And that's the reason we love our wives and children more than the rich, because we got not much besides them, and we will not go and leave them at home for to starve. Until that draft law is repealed, I for one am willing to knock down more such rumhole politicians as Kennedy. Why don't they let the nigger kill the slave driving race and take possession of the South as it belongs to them? End quote. And that letter is signed, a poor man, but a man for all that. And this is the editor's reply. Quote, our correspondent is evidently very much in earnest, but he is in a very dense fog on the subject of the draft. It may be hard that a poor man should be compelled to serve his country as a soldier, but he is not asked to do it gratuitously, and every possible precaution is taken to provide for his wife and children. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of such men have volunteered to defend their country now that its existence is in danger, and have never dreamed that they became either vagabonds or a rabble on that account. It is true that men who have $300 can purchase exemption from this honorable duty, but their $300 goes into the pockets of the poor men who may volunteer to take their places. Money will purchase exemption from a great man of the laborers of life, and there always will be a great many men willing to use it for that purpose, and neither laws nor anything else can change this state of things. But if our correspondent thinks that this justifies him in committing murder and arson, or that he shows his love for his wife and children by plunging the society in which they live into the midst of anarchy and crime, he will live to find out his mistake." End quote. 
But as is often the case, the variables that made an event such as the New York City draft riots and massacre of 1863 possible began years prior. Now let's explore that. I'll never 